0: Welcome to the other half of Church Podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. With Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder, we explore the brain God has given us and what we need for a healthy, transformational community of faith. It was so interesting to learn last time the the ways that the brain has a master processor and a slave processor and how those work together to uh, shape our experience and to shape how we process the world. And in your, your new book, The Other Half of Church, which you wrote with Michael, you you have a metaphor for explaining the, the ingredients that it takes to have a healthy community that grows vibrant people of faith. And you use soil. And I was wondering if you'd be able to explain why did that metaphor seem to work and and how do you understand it? Yeah,
1: well, we were looking around at first using a bunch of medical metaphors uh, for uh, diseases and cures and stuff like that. Because we are actually sort of dealing with a disease of the soul. But those metaphors all rapidly became too complicated for uh you know, the average, uh, reader to enjoy. Now you couldn't understand them, but it just got too technical too fast. Um, uh, and so, um, sitting in Michael's yard, looking at his tomatoes, uh, we began to discuss how, um, they had stopped growing and until he'd found the right nutritional balance to put in them. And it just became, kind of clear that that's what was happening in people's spiritual lives. That they start out with this big splash, you know, at first things are growing really fast and then, um, you know, try as you would, you just don't get any spiritual, uh, <laughs> tomatoes, shall we say, you know, mm-hmm. the fruit just starts drying up. And so he said, "Yeah, you know, I had to put all the right ingredients back in the soil. And we thought, well, that's what we're really trying to do with the church and we're trying to put the relational ingredients back in the soil and so that it Christians and their interactions with each other grow really good relationships the kind that others will look at and go whoosh I wish I had a relationship like that you know how do you connect mm-hmm. with God with that way how do you connect with your family that way how do you connect with these other Christians that way and and so that was um, When we came down to it, four particular things that had to be added back into the church. And everyone, I think, has tried to grow a plant someplace in their life. Mm. Uh, So it's something we all understand. And um, so it it just worked for us to to explain things in a a simple kind of a way.
0: And so... There's four ingredients, and in the book you say that the first one is joy. And in a previous episode, you mentioned that when we're developing as babies, the right half of our brain isn't fully developed and it grows on joy. Well, let me
1: correct uh, that a little bit. The front half of both sides of our brain isn't fully developed. In fact, it isn't really there yet when we're infants. And it's the front half of our brain. The back half of our brain is the one that kind of does all of our fear responses. So Mm -hmm. you can still scare a baby when they're first born, you know, and they'll react and, you know, arch their back and scream and, and, and carry Mm -hmm. on. That's all there. The fear reactions are there and, and the basic desire to eat, you know, and things like that connect are there, but The right half of the brain that develops first um, develops in response to joy. That's the part we were talking about. So, yeah. um, And joy uh, didn't mean anything to me when I first heard it. Um, Joy was sort of like uh, the maraschino cherry on top of a... uh, uh, Sunday, you know, yeah, or a banana yeah. split or something like that. It's something like if everything else is going right, then you get this little sort of uh, <laughs> sweet little red extra thing there that's uh, yeah, you know, uh, it's a bonus. Don't count on it. So yeah. to, to move it from there to the central ingredient was a huge shift in my mind. And what I hadn't understood about joy. Uh, was it? it's relational. It, it joy is actually a response to somebody that is glad to be with you. And hmm. so we talk about it, you know, like uh, I, I really um, enjoy chocolate, let's say, but the difference between chocolate is if you smile at chocolate, it does not smile back at you. And the, The joy process is actually a very high energy process. It's the exercise, sort of the cardio exercise of the brain. So with a little baby, uh, when you smile at them, they start smiling back at you very quickly. And within six to 10 seconds, they have maxed out the top of their nervous system. They just went from no energy, basically sort of brain dead, that kind of condition, up to as much energy as that little brain can produce and then it starts to 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 short out you know and so the baby will look away and have to quiet down again in order to do another joy smile so they alternate back and forth about 6 times a, a minute between joy and uh, and quiet and joy and quiet it's a tremendous workout for the brain and the stronger your joy the more uh, an actual Fact, it's voltage and and chemistry it can handle before it goes on the fritz for you. So, if you work this out, it's like a muscle in that sense. The more workouts you do, the more repetitions you do, the more that little brain can handle without getting in trouble. And so, it gives you this immense resiliency for all the other things you have to handle because your brain can handle a lot of a signal big, strong, intense events. Uh, and trauma, of course, is when people don't handle intense events, but Building Joy explained to us why some people could handle intense events and, and walk away from them, and other people were completely undone. They just hadn't got the, the stamina in their their brain's uh, system. You know, the, the nerves couldn't mm-hmm. handle the intensity of what's going in, and Joy was that workout. It's the only workout that babies want to do. I mean, you can work out with other feelings. You can try disgust, for instance, which is wired into the brain. But who wants to do that six times a, a <laughs> minute, right? Not me, no. No, nobody does. So joy is the only one that really works for workouts. And when you realize mm. that joy amplifies, if it's not amplifying, it isn't real joy. You mm. might be remembering joy, but joy is always a workout. It's always amplifying it. It's sort of brain cardio in that sense when i realized that it's an active process not just something that you know drifts your way or some spiritual rare experience of of euphoria you know that's happiness and all those things work in that category and you can get happy from from chocolate but mm-hmm. you don't get joy from
0: chocolate hmm. so i've heard before of just like tragic cases, like in an orphanage, that's too full to really take care of the children, that there's some developmental issues from those, those children is, is joy and that relational processing is, does that help explain what happens in those places?
1: Uh, That's exactly what explains uh, what happens in those places. And, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, um, when I, we ran a counseling center, a lot of the people that came in were the children of missionaries, pastors, and Christian leaders.
0: Hmm.
1: and they were you know depressed and anxious, and you know, uh, something about the the way they'd been raised seemed off. Uh, and I guess the way I'd describe it is they were they were raised kind of like uh, prize-winning cows they were hmm. given all of their shots. They're given the best treatment. They're given the best food. They're taken to the best schools. Everything about them that the parents could give that was good uh, was given to them. But no one took a, the time to rejoice in them. To to just uh-huh. say, "I really enjoy you and, and and engage that way." And in fact, there's almost a feeling in, in Christianity that you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, When we would begin to help them experience joy, many of their symptoms would clear up. In fact, as they built joy, uh, they would decrease the antidepressants they were on. Uh, It would begin to correct the the biological problems uh, from depression and, and lack of focus and things like that. Even attention deficit responds nicely to joy. Hmm. Uh, because what you want to do is engage with uh, another person. That's what the brain was designed for. And if you're just looking at uh, like TV screens, Uh uh, now you're just responding to novelty. TV screens don't respond back to you with joy. They don't amplify anything. They just keep your brain hopping from one thing to another, uh, trying to, re, you know, re-engage your attention at least every three to six seconds. So instead of building joy and quieting, you're just hopping around uh, mm. and joy helps overcome that. It says teaches your brain, let's go back to
0: what we we're supposed to do. So just going back for a second to the, the orphanage question, if if joy helps the brain develop and there's, there's children who tragically don't have that and it doesn't develop, is is hope lost, or what does the brain do if it doesn't fully develop? Because it sounds like there's ramifications through adulthood. But in your counseling, it seems like you were you were trying to solve that problem. How does the brain kind of repair itself if it doesn't get that initial nutrient of joy?
1: Well, there's uh, a couple of uh, apoptotic periods that we need to think about um, in that question. The first is that your brain is easiest to train at the time that it's growing the fastest. In the first four years of your life, your brain is doing its fastest growth. It's growing those parts that weren't there before. And never again in the rest of your life will you be able to grow joy the way you could the first four years.
0: Hmm.
1: At the end of four years, your brain has uh, this apoptosis or apoptosis, some people say it, a period where it goes through and it clears out the brain cells that haven't been used. So your brain has a capacity to develop a whole lot of different ways. But four years old, it said, well, the basic stuff should be here now. So let's, let's just kill off the stuff we're not using, a big pruning period. And a lot of brain cells die off. And that's why if you try to learn languages after that age, you often have an accent or something like that, you know, whereas regardless of what language you're trying to learn the first four years, your brain's ready to do it. But you may have cleared out some circuits you you needed to use. And if you haven't been using a lot of your joy circuits or your quieting circuits, your brain will trim them back going, we're not doing much of this, so we don't need this in here. Uh, It does a second clean out at age 14, 13 to 14, right at adolescence. Hmm. And if you were low on joy, it will take out four times as much of the joy circuits as it would for somebody who has a natural uh, experience of joy. So uh, the die off, for the joy circuits is much larger. So you see, you work in the first four years, really good uh, results. If you wait and do from four to 12, um, moderate results. After age 12, the question was still very open um, when it was about the year 2000, whether that could be developed. And that's actually when we began to work on our book. There was one thing that was hopeful. I remember being at a Alan Shore, lecture, I think it was at UCLA, and he said the right prefrontal cortex retains fetal biochemistry across the lifespan. And the entire audience stood and gave a standing ovation. Now, they're mostly neurologists, and they were giving a standing ovation for the wonders of evolution because they're all evolutionary. But what retaining fetal biochemistry across the lifespan turns into is it's always able to grow the way it was even before you were born. Now there's mm-hmm. less of it to grow, but we have actually experienced, um, building joy in uh, people with Alzheimer's, um, very old people, people with various kinds of dementia, people with, uh, uh, brain damage. Um, there's, uh, uh chemical disorders, um, Even uh, unrelated disorders like schizophrenia, they can still build joy into their adulthood, and it helps them compensate for the problems that you carry with them. They don't remove the other problems, but as you build your joy, you're able to compensate better for the other problems in your life. So there's something very, very hopeful about that. Uh, The brain can, it it has this plasticity, uh, it doesn't make the problems go away, but it makes it much easier to live the life that God meant us to live in spite of the problems or sufferings we might have in our lives.
0: Uh, that is that is good news <laughs> that there's still hope even if some stages are missed early on. And I feel like that's that's a big job for the church to to recognize that those early years are so formational and to, to do that well, but also to not give up um, for those who are still struggling later into adulthood as well.
1: Well, that does lead us to another, a couple little observations. One is um, if it takes six cycles, a second, I mean, six cycles, a minute of joy, smiling at you. And uh, at, during the ninth month of life after, after birth, A baby will spend up to eight hours a day with mother doing nothing but building joy. Hmm. So one of the things uh, that I've often told people is, uh, you know, young mothers don't earn a lot of money. So instead of, you know, giving them uh, gifts of, you know, videos to watch or stuff like that, how about we got together and paid for every young mother to be able to stay home for the ninth month of her baby's life to spend eight hours a day building joy, give that baby the strongest brain possible for a lifespan. Mm. Because the the ability to build joy is the strongest predictor of mental health across your lifespan. Wow. And so that would be very, uh, you know, very useful thing for us to consider. How do we build into these special times uh, the things that we need? And later on in life, you know, if you grow up to be very unhappy, it's pretty hard to find people that will smile at you for, you mm-hmm. know, even a minute, let alone for that kind of um, time. And so one of the problems with older people who have the the lack of joy is that you grew up to be sort of a, can I say it, miserable human being, <laughs> and people don't like to be around you. yeah. So we need somebody who is able to enjoy or bring joy into the life of people who would feel like our enemies or, you know, um, somebody no one would normally like. And I think the church has a special role in the world to look up people who would otherwise have no joy and say, you know, we're going to bring the joy of God into your life in a way that you can physically and visually experience, even though you're difficult to be around you know Um, otherwise there's no way to really rebuild that joy Um, you know and, and exercise it with human beings if nobody likes you so I think church has a special special commission in the area of joy
0: in this episode Jim Wilder explained how our brains run on joy which is when someone is excited to be with you Joy develops the brain and keeps it healthy. In the next section, I'm going to discuss with Michael Hendricks how the church can be a place where joy can be shared and what the biggest barriers to joy are in today's church. Michael, in my conversation with Jim, he had talked about a counseling center that he was a part of where he encountered the children of many Christian leaders that were struggling with depression and anxiety and in the children he linked their depression to to a feeling of austerity in christianity where enjoying something or someone can be looked down on and i was wondering do you have a sense of where did this austerity come from
2: well that's a it's a good question and it's a complex question so part of this will be just my my swing at it. I, I haven't done any you know in depth research, but it you know as as the book that Jim and I wrote says, I'll, we've put I'll end up putting over the last three or four hundred years uh, a lot of our Christianity into our left brain, which was really the problem solving, the the verbal and the conscious thought area, and not so much. Mm-hmm. The the relational processing, most of the relational processing and connecting and um, joy that we've talked about and other things are in our right brain. So I think this austerity is it would be something I would expect for a Christianity that's put a lot of its practice
0: into the left brain. Hmm. And so if we have a kind of overemphasis on the left brain and lack the skills to create joy in the right brain, how what have you learned in how to build joy as a church body?
2: Well, one of the things I've learned, especially after learning the neuroscience of joy from Jim Wilder, and then going back and reading the Bible and trying, and trying to look for what the Bible says about joy. The thing that, that hit me the strongest is the importance of the face and the importance Mm. of the eyes. You know, like when I'd read one of the classic ones is in number six, when, uh, when it says, the Lord bless you and keep you and the Lord, make his face shine on you
0: mm-hmm.
2: and turn his face toward you. Um, and I did some studies, too, and other in other Psalms. Um, like one of the earliest verses when I, that, that I memorized when I became a Christian was Psalm 1611, which in the version I memorized, it, it says, in your presence is fullness of joy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I went back and looked at that. Anytime I saw presence or something, I wondered if you know lurking under was something else. And the, in the kind of the literal Hebrew translation, renders this verse: "There's abundance of joy with your face." Hmm. Talking the yours with God, with your face, God. When I feel your face shining on me, there's abundance of joy. And uh, mm-hmm. and I saw this over and over again, where it, almost like the the face of God often got removed, it got re- erased and mm-hmm. replaced. You know, instead of this, this abundant, you know, the joy that that Jim talks about where a baby is just absorbing the shining face of his mother looking at the the young child, that's getting replaced by more of a left brain conceptual concept thing of, of, I'm in your presence, which is good. It's good to know we're in God's presence, but Mm -hmm. there's a, it feels different in your body, in my body, because our bodies were configured that way to respond to the joy of someone's face, their face lighting up, their eyes sparkling. And mm-hmm. so that's that's one of the most, the keys you have to really start with the face and re-putting the face at the center of our interactions in our churches.
0: Yeah, and I, if I think about my experience with church, the, the children's ministry tends to have a little bit of that, like face-to-face, smiling, laughing, having fun. But then as you get older, it becomes more and more you're sitting side-by-side with somebody staring straight ahead. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. think that that, causes or creates kind of a lack of joy in the community
2: well it definitely points people that way you know when we we prioritize the face it's actually kind of a countercultural statement you know it's going Mm -hmm. in direction that's against the stream of our of our of our culture in this country at least and much of the world
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, not all of the world Um, but you know some some larger churches even are removing the teachers and replacing them with video screens. They're videoizing yeah, so that they can prepare a really, really high quality, entertaining, really good, well done video much higher than could be done with a bunch of volunteers.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But sometimes what's not considered is they're losing the face and our, and our mind does not react to the, the to the video of someone's face like it does in person.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And we're a sense robbing even young children. In that case, when we make those decisions, we rob them, of our face, which is, again, a way of robbing them of joy.
0: Hmm. So Jim had talked about how early childhood is a time of tremendous growth in the brain. And it seems like like children's ministry could be this silver bullet to the, the current crisis we face in the church. So how can we approach children's ministry, as I've heard you say, from a neurological perspective?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I would slow it down. So when kids show up to like if they have a like like a preschool or a class, Sunday school class, as kids come in, they have the teacher slow down, look kids in the eye for a couple seconds and say, I am so glad you were here. And let Mm -hmm. that child know with your face too, not just with your words, because you can communicate a lot with your face with no words much, much more than you might think and uh, and the nonverbal cues from our face are, are neurologically important and uh and so there's you know they've done the scans on those and and it's it's just our fit, our brain lights up and and really looks for that looks for the joyful face and so maybe a young you know 8-year-old kid whose parents are going through a divorce or have a low joy environment for one reason or another to come in to a Sunday school class and have several of the adults' faces just light up and say how happy they are that I was here. I could see Mm -hmm. their eyes sparkle. That actually may, you know,
0: that's like food to a starving young child,
2: the -hmm. food of joy.
0: Is that significantly different than, uh, I would think, like a a welcoming team in the, the big service?
2: Yeah, I think the welcoming team is trying to do that. The problem is... You know, in, in a church I attended that was very large, they would have just a stream of people. So it'd be kind of like yeah. have a Welkingham team, you know, outside a U2 concert where you have, you know, 30,000 <laughs> people walking by. It's yeah. a nice try, but it's probably not going to work very well.
0: Yeah. So what do you think the benefits could be if, like, downstream, the, if you develop a healthy response to joy, you, develop, you work out those joy muscles as a child, it creates a resilience and ability to attach later on in life. Mm-hmm. What do you think could happen if the church really invested in this aspect of ministry? What, what transformation could take place in the health and life of that church and all the churches that it could interact with?
2: Well, a couple of things happen. You mentioned one, which is called emotional resilience, and, and joy is one of the key ingredients to to uh, creating re- emotionally resilient people. And what resilience means is that you can recover from the big negative feeling emotions fairly quickly, mm-hmm. because joy gives you is, is one of the equations. There's other things you need as well, but joy is an essential ingredient to help you be able to recover recover quick and. And so when you can recover quick from big emotions, that means when you have a conflict with someone, you're more able to stay relational in that conflict rather than Mm -hmm. turning into an argument or a fight and then people want to win. All of those are examples of joy going out the door and some other things as well going out the door and nothing really good happens when that's the case. Mm -hmm. Um, And another thing that happens interestingly is, and I've I've seen this in my own life, is when you start building joy and you start filling up your joy gas tank, your brain almost knows as you, as the levels keep going up and up and up as you're doing this joy work, that there's certain stored trauma in your brain. And a lot of times that, that trauma stays hidden from our conscious mind because we don't have the capacity to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So it's actually kind of a merciful thing that God designed into our brains. But as you build joy, sometimes some of those traumas will come back into your conscious memory. And uh, so you need, you know, you also need some practices to deal with them, but that's a good, that's a good thing. It's essentially your brain saying, Ooh, Michael's getting strong enough now. Let's, let's uh, remind him of this trauma and let's go in and and heal this because he can, he can actually recover from this and not have all this strange emotional energy that he has that's mysterious to him. All of a sudden he can understand it and he can heal it. Hmm. So joy is an essential uh, aspect of healing trauma
0: well that's so interesting and it we all bring our own trauma into the conversation and it and it does shape and affect the way that we move forward and it's interesting that if you can raise that joy level it's like your your body knows hey now is a time that I could actually deal with some of these issues and the church could be a place for that healing to to take place yeah that's
2: an example of an area that i I missed when I was a spiritual pastor of spiritual formation and I was, you know, my job was to try to help people grow and I would mm-hmm. come up with trainings and resources, but I didn't come up with an intentional way to increase people's joy, which really I believe is the first step in any discipleship process mm-hmm. and program, because it's kind of like, um, you know, it's kind of like taking a car out for an important drive and you forget to fill up the gas tank.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right. Your car can be in perfect working order, but if you don't have gas, not, not much is going to happen. And that's a pretty good analogy for the way we work when we're low joy. And so what I would have done, I would have gone back and added some joy exercises at the very beginning and then have people start doing them so that any kind of, extra, any kind of practices or exercises or curricula or whatever we do later is is addressed after joy levels have gone up. And they're much more likely to be fruitful and successful and transformative Um, when you do that, but I didn't know that at the time.
0: Yeah. What are some of those joy
2: exercises that you've used? So one of the the places to start with, uh, building joy is gratitude. A friend of mine says that gratitude is the on-ramp to joy. So it's kind Mm. of the first place you can start to build, uh, to build and and fill up your, your joy gas tank. Um, one of the exercises Jim taught me, and it's, he, he says it's kind of like a right brain dominant Gratitude exercise, you know, a left brain dominant one would be tr- thanking God verbally, like God, thank you so much for my wife, thank you God for my kids. That's mm-hmm. left brain and that's good. That's not bad. A right brain dominant gratitude exercise would be remembering a specific uh, memory mm-hmm. that 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 brings my brings me appreciation or gratitude, and and that has some strong positive emotional content, and that I can maybe even feel God's presence, kind of God was with me in it or smiling on me in it too. And going back in that memory and just sitting in it in silence because our right brain processes more video picture memory and just sitting in it and reliving it.
0: Hmm.
2: And, uh, and Jim directed me into doing that once and and just said, you know, find a memory. And I found one and I sat in it. And he says, after about 10 or 15 seconds of reliving, he said, so what do you feel in your body right now?
0: Hmm. And I kind of feel like
2: a, I felt like a tingling in my my chest and my stomach. And then he said, well, what, what do you think God might be kind of impressing on you through that through that memory you have and the tingling you're feeling? And I said, I've, I sense just God God's really pleased to bless me and was really happy I went through this experience. Hmm. And then Jim had me start a list of, of similar memories, give them a title, each one a title. I gave that title, Red-Tailed Hawk. And then I started a list on my phone, which now has something like th- almost 30 gratitude memories. But Jim said, try to to come up with a list over the next month or two of at least 10 memories of appreciation or gratitude, and then try to spend five minutes of nonverbal gratitude where you're going back into the memories, and you're just kind of sitting in them, and you're just kind of soaking in it, and you're re-feeling what it felt like when you first experienced the good memory. Hmm. Um, I have a lot of them with my wife and with my kids. I have some memories that are just beauty Like uh, specifically just shockingly beautiful sunsets, uh, birds I've seen, flowers, things I've done hiking in the mountains of Colorado where I'd come around Mm -hmm. the bend and see something that was just so beautiful. I wanted to drink it in.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: And some of my memories are also experiences I had with God where he felt particularly close. Mm -hmm. And I felt um, that he was kind of surrounding me. And protecting me and speaking to me, so it's a mix of different things. It can even be something as simple as a there's a really good meal, you yeah. know. So it can be anything small like that, all the way to when you met your wife, when you became a Christian, when you met your best friend, things like that that are big. And so that's a practice I do pretty much every morning now. I'll I'll, I'll get up and uh, I'll sit down in, in in a room I like in our house that looks out on our backyard. I'll start a five minute timer on my phone and I'll just kind of rest and I use my list. You know, I usually have to use two or three memories Mm -hmm. uh, to get through five minutes of nonverbal gratitude and then just soak it in. And I can it just feels good, too. It feels like I'm nourishing something in my brain and in my soul. And how
0: does that affect the rest of your day?
2: So one of the things that gratitude does is it helps helps create a return path to God when you feel Mm -hmm. you've kind of lost his presence. You know, since we're going into these memories, you were going into times when God felt very close. And those times, we don't always have those times 24 hours a day throughout our life. So it's really good to build up a concentration of the close times. And you're kind of reminding your mind and building a path back to God's presence so that later in the day, if something happens and kind of, I lose my connection or sense of God being close to me, you know, because that happens with our brains sometimes, especially in the presence of strong, negative feeling emotions. Mm-hmm. Um I can kind of rest and I can go back into one one of the memories, especially one of the memories that I used that particular day, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
2: because I have 20 or more memories on my list. So, you know, I use different ones, different days. But if I can remember one or two of them that I've used and go back, it's almost like I think Jim said once that those memories, in a sense, are kind of chemically present for a while in your brain still. So it's easier to get back to those specific memories you just resided in and sat in. And it helps me become myself again, and I'm, I'm almost like back, and I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm Michael again. For a while there, I've, I stopped being myself or feeling like myself.
0: You've been listening to The Other Half of Church podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. To learn more about the book by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, visit theotherhalfofchurch.com.